Good morning. If you would, turn in your Bibles to John chapter 12. John chapter 12. And Dave mentioned it, but I want to just uh, reiterate that we are continuing our series in the Gospel of John, but if you follow along to what's been presented over the last 10 weeks or so, we've not been in the Gospel of John. We've taken a, a break from the Gospel of John since, I believe, about uh, May, the month of May, all the way to the present. So I think 11 weeks we were out of the Gospel of John, but now we are, it is true, continuing our series back in the Gospel of John. Uh, one other uh, 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 side note, I guess you could say, if you follow the uh, calendar or the bulletin closely, uh, you would know that David Gill was scheduled to speak this morning. Uh, but due to the hurricane and his high position at FPNL, he uh, he was unable to, uh, to to speak today. He would have been out actually had the hurricane hit Florida for probably some time. So uh, just a week ago, actually, and I only I mentioned this for one particular reason. Just a week ago, uh, is of course when the hurricane was upon us, and when I was asked to take John chapter twelve. I don't typically take speaking on short notice. I feel such a burden and need to really study and study and study and so forth. But anyway, I was asked to do it, and I, I mentioned it to, uh, to Jessica, my wife. And uh, she said, you know, I, I think you should take up that, that privilege and responsibility. And uh, maybe since you only have a week to prepare, you won't preach so long this time. <laughs> so that's a true story, by the way. So, anyways, um, John chapter 12. Um, so, John chapter 12. Let's read. We're just covering 11 verses this morning, so that's a good thing. Let's read uh, the 11 verses, and, um, and then we'll begin. Actually, let me say a word or two of introduction before we read the 11 verses. Uh, we've, uh, as I said, we discontinued John, the Gospel of John, about 11 weeks or so ago. And uh, I just want to give a very brief uh, refresher so that we can connect where we are. So we are now basically in the middle of the Gospel of John. So I don't know what maybe each of you individually thinks. Maybe you think, well, that must mean that we're in the middle of the life of the Lord Jesus. Or maybe you think, well, I know it's not the middle of his life, but maybe it's the middle of the ministry of the Lord Jesus, the middle of that three years of ministry. But actually, as we come into John chapter 12, we are entering the final week of the life of the Lord Jesus. I know that many of you are aware of this, but each of the gospel writers have allotted a large portion of their gospel text to the final week of the life of the Lord Jesus. In the case of the gospel of John, uh, I didn't do the actual calculation, but many say more than 50% of the Gospel of John is allotted to the final week of the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. We remember that the Gospel of John, uh, John tells us very clearly why it's written in John chapter 20. Uh, and again, I know that we've been over this many times, but we've been out of the Gospel of John for 11 weeks. So I'm just going to read this statement from John chapter 20 and verse 30 and 31. And truly, Jesus did many other signs, miracles, in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these, these miracle signs, are written 
that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. So the writer of the Gospel of John tells us specifically, we don't get this in every book of the Bible, but in the Gospel of John, we get the specific reason from the writer himself as to why he's written this book. He wants to prove that Jesus is the Son of God and that you'll believe it, that I'll believe it, and that by believing it, we'll have life in his name. He uses miracles. Of course, there's narrative as well, but he uses miracles. Seven miracles are written or recorded in the Gospel of John. And the last of those seven miracles was just the prior chapter, John chapter 11. And many would say this was the greatest of the miracles, that there was some escalation in the recording of the miracles because you know, and if you don't, I'm going to remind you, that John chapter 11 was the resurrection of Lazarus, a man who had been dead three days in the tomb that Jesus, by the word of his power, called back to life, perhaps the greatest of the miracles, if you could rank them in greatness. No doubt a wonder beyond any wonder that humankind had ever seen, certainly in that day, and I would suggest in this day as well, as he called Lazarus back to life. So that was John 1 to 11. There are seven miracles scattered throughout John 1 to 11. There's other texts. There's other commentary. There's some of the words of the Lord Jesus But then we come to John chapter 12. John chapter 12 is just the final week. It begins the final week, Passion Week, some would say, uh, or call it the final week of the life of the Lord Jesus. So it says this in John chapter 12 and verse 1. Then six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany where Lazarus was who had been dead, whom he had raised from the dead. That's what we just said from John chapter 11. There in Bethany, they made him a supper and and Martha served. But Lazarus was one of those who sat at the table with him. Then Mary took a pound of very costly oil of spikenard, anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the oil. But one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, who would betray him, said, Why was this fragrant oil not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? This he said, not that he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief and had the money box, and he used to take what was put in it. But Jesus said, Let her alone. Or you could say, leave her alone. Leave her alone. She has kept this for the day of my burial. For the poor you have with you always, but me you do not have always. Now, a great many of the Jews knew that he was there, and they came, not for Jesus' sake only, but that they might also see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. But the chief priest plotted to put Lazarus to death also. Because on account of him, many of the Jews went away and believed in Jesus. That's the text for today. Let's just ask the Lord for help. Our Heavenly Father, as we uh, come this morning to look into your word together, 
I do pray that you would bless and guide our time together, that you would uh, open to us in that sense, open open our understanding to the scriptures, that we would uh, uh, read and understand and rightly divide it, that is rightly understand it and rightly apply it to our lives, we pray. We commit this time to you for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. So the uh, basics, the basics of John chapter 12. Well, we just read it. It's a very short passage. And uh, basically, Lazarus had been dead in chapter 11, was raised to life. Now there's a meal that's put on for the Lord Jesus. It seems an appreciation for what the Lord Jesus had done. Remember, it was Lazarus' sisters, Mary and Martha, that had pled with the Lord to come and to uh, uh, to heal him. Well, actually, uh, I believe it was Mary that said, Lord, if you had been here when Lazarus was sick, she was saying he wouldn't have died. But she didn't realize that the Lord had allowed him to die to then raise him back to life. So now in John chapter 12, we have this appreciation meal, if you will, that they put out for the Lord Jesus to show their gratitude uh, for what he had done in the raising of Lazarus. Lazarus, excuse me. And of course, we can see there plainly that Martha's serving, uh, Lazarus is sitting at the table with Jesus, and Mary, of course, is doing the anointing of the feet of Jesus. This is just the basics of the story, so we understand what we're dealing with before we get into uh, the actual uh, uh, dissecting it and applying it. There's another character there, Judas, where as Mary is anointing the feet of Jesus, while he perks up and the other gospel writers that record this would suggest that the other disciples kind of joined on board with him and saying, what are you doing, Mary? Why are you dumping out this precious ointment on the feet of Jesus? We could have sold that ointment for 300 denarii, uh, many say equivalent to a whole year's salary for a working person. That's a lot of value a lot of value. Why did you pour that out on the feet of Jesus? It's as if Mary saw something that no one else saw. It's as if Mary recognized the surpassing worth of the Lord Jesus Christ that many others there, certainly not Judas, but I would suggest others of the disciples as well, according to the other gospel narratives, didn't quite understand either the worth, the value of the Lord Jesus. What is he worth to you? What is he worth to you? And so there's Judas. And then, of course, at the end of the passage, we read that many of the Jews, uh, they heard about this miracle of Lazarus. Now the testimony, the witness of Lazarus is spreading around And they seek to kill Lazarus to put him to death. I just want to make one little point because I don't think we'll get to it later. John chapter 11, Lazarus is given new life in Christ, or for that matter, new life by Christ. John chapter 12 and verse uh, verse 2, Lazarus, who was given new life by Christ, is found sitting at the table with the Lord Jesus Christ. Have you been given new life by Christ? Many of us would say, I have. Do you sit at the table with the Lord Jesus Christ? Do you commune with him? Do you fellowship with him? Are you fed by the good shepherd? 
But we learn something else, and that is this. The one who was given new life in Christ, who sits at the table with Christ, now has new enemies. New enemies. Anyone here that recognized that after becoming a child of God, there were new enemies in your life? That oftentimes, in fact, you could say that those things which were once our greatest friends are now our greatest foes. As an unbeliever, right, there are things that, that are, they're all we have. Immorality, drugs, drinking, whatever it is, there are things that we grasp to apart from Christ. There are only friends. Hey, look, when you look at out the world, you see them, right? Those who do not have the Savior. I'm not casting stones. I say this in mercy. They're desperate. They have nothing. And so they grasp on to things. Whatever it is, sports, fashion, popularity, fame, money. When you come to Christ... When you receive new life in Christ, like Lazarus did, many times you'll find that you have a whole new set of enemies. In fact, that those things which were once your greatest friends, the things you clung to are now your greatest foes. These are the things that, 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 that trouble us the most. I just can't seem to put this down or put that down. I can't seem to break loose of these things. The reality of the Christian life is not that as... I think our brother Max said it's not all peaches and cream. No, not at all. But new life in Christ, sit at the table with Christ. There's going to be some new enemies that need to be dealt with. Perhaps it's things that were your greatest friends before Christ that you need to deal with. So this is the core of the story. You could say that's basically the summary of the story. But I want to highlight a few things as we continue on. I want to contrast... For just a moment, the first three characters that are listed for us in the story. Not Jesus, but the first three that are named there. Uh, this is Lazarus, Martha, and Mary. Or for that matter, we're going to name them the way that, uh, that uh, verse 2 and 3 do. Martha served, Lazarus sat at the table, and Mary anointed. She took the oil. And I want to just contrast these briefly as we go into now let me just say this too as we're going to contrast these characters i want to make this very clear the main point the main thought of the message today concerns worship worship there's more than that in john chapter 12 but the main point that i'm going to get to is worship on our way there i want to just contrast these three characters so martha lazarus and Mary, they picture something for us. They illustrate something for us. I've already given you a little bit regarding Lazarus. Uh, Martha, uh, I'll leave those both there. Martha served. Service for the Lord. This is a real and true part of the Christian life. Service for the Lord. You could say that the primary beneficiary of service for the Lord is not yourself, not even so much the Lord, although it's for him, but it's actually others. The ones that primarily benefit from your service for the Lord is others. Lazarus, on the other hand, represents to us or illustrates to us that communion, that time at the table with the Lord Jesus. 
this communion is not so much for the Lord, but with the Lord. And the primary beneficiary, I would suggest to you, is you. Yes, the Lord benefits, no doubt. Yes, indirectly, others benefit when you commune with the Lord. But the primary beneficiary of that time of communion at the table with the Lord Jesus Christ, and by the table, I just mean sitting with him, opening his words, speaking to him, allowing him to speak to you. The primary beneficiary is is you. Martha, service for the Lord. Lazarus, communion with the Lord. Mary, adoration. Adoration unto the Lord. And in this case, the primary beneficiary is the Lord himself. The Lord himself. And we're going to talk a fair amount about that, I trust. Martha, you could say, represents partnership with an emphasis on the work of the Lord. Lazarus represents fellowship with an emphasis on the presence of the Lord. And Mary, you could say, illustrates or represents worship with an emphasis on appreciation of the Lord. Or you could say, and I'm just going to give three more, if you like alliterations, many have noted that Martha represents work, work for the Lord. That's important, by the way. I'm not minimizing that. That's part of the Christian life. We're going to talk about that a little bit. Lazarus, the walk of the Christian, and Mary, the worship, if you like, alliterations. Now, it is interesting that all three of these are critical to the life of the believer. If you're walking with the Lord, if you've known the Lord for any amount of time, you know that all three of these, service, communion, and adoration, are all critical to the life of the Christian. And they're all intricately linked together. In fact, at times as you go through the scripture, you start to unpack as we're going to unpack worship. And as I kind of unpacked worship, I found within it, in a very real sense, communion in service. They're all intricately linked. There's at least 15 times in the Old Testament where worship and service go hand in hand. They're directly linked. Verses like Deuteronomy eleven sixteen: Take care lest your heart be deceived and you turn aside and serve other gods and worship them. Service and worship. But if your heart turns away, Deuteronomy 30, verse 17, and you will not hear but are drawn away to worship other gods and serve them. They're intricately linked together. All three of these, you could say, certainly worship and service, but all three of them are wrapped up in one another. They're not the same thing, but they're intricately linked to one another. And we'll unpack that a little bit as we go. Remember what the Lord Jesus said uh, in Matthew chapter 4 in his response to Satan. You shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you Serve, worship and service, right. Intricately linked together. Listen to what, to what Mr. Gibbs says. By the way, if you want a phenomenal book on worship, uh, A.P. Gibbs writes one that just says worship on the cover, at least the one that I borrowed from Brother Howard. But it's worship, the Christian's highest occupation. And this is what he says in uh, the beginning of his book, and this is, I, I, I'm so glad I found this because it's like the thoughts of my mind and my heart were put into words that were understandable. He said this, that quality of worship, which does not result in service 
and that service which does not flow from worship both come short of the divine ideal. That, from my studies, is so profoundly true. That quality of worship which does not result in service. Listen, there's lots of people in Christendom today. You may be one of them. I have been at times. I'll go and I'll worship or I'll say I'm worshiping. I, 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 Lord, I love you. Oh, this is wonderful. The music, the lights, the smoke, it's tremendous. But that quality of worship, which does not result in genuine service and perhaps this is me even more so that service, which does not flow out of genuine worship, both come short of the divine ideal. That is profoundly profoundly true service that flows out of a genuine heart of worship is what the lord wants and worship that is genuine that is true the heart that is truly bowed before the lord recognizing who he is and what he's done will no doubt lead to service that heart of adoration will result that type of worship true worship acceptable worship will result in service this is profoundly profoundly true like isaiah in isaiah chapter 6 remember that text he sees the lord high and lifted up there's this majestic scene of worship he's moved within him saying "Ah, woe is me i'm undone it's it's moving look at this look at the lord high and lifted up look at the angels worshiping before him But then the question comes, who will go? And what did Isaiah say? Here am I, Lord, send me. That type of worship, genuine worship, true worship, will result in the the service that the Lord desires. So this is very true, very true throughout Scripture. Like Noah... Those that walk with God, Genesis 6, 8, will work for God, Genesis 6, 22, and will worship God, Genesis 8, 20. Like Abraham, those that are true friends of God, many say, I'm a friend of God. They do. But those that are true friends of God will have a life characterized by altars of worship. That was Abraham everywhere he went. He'd only pitch a tent temporary dwelling but he built altars places of worship like abraham those that are true friends of god will have a life characterized by altars of worship built unto the living god and humble acts of service for him there's lots of references i could give for that like isaiah those that gain a fresh vision of the worshiped lord will cry out in willing service here am i lord send me Like Nehemiah, those most profitable spiritual leaders are those who lead the people in the work. Come, let us build, Nehemiah would say, yet also lead the people in the walk of communion. Nevertheless, we made our prayer to God, Nehemiah would say, and also call the people to worship this day, Nehemiah would say, as a solemn assembly to the Lord. They're all intricately linked. They all go hand in hand. Let us take the lesson. We sometimes can become so imbalanced one way or another. So imbalanced. 
running sometimes in service for the Lord. But where is the fellowship? Where is the communion? Where is the worship? They all feed one another. The Lord Jesus, a tremendous example of this as well. Off to the mountain to pray in deep communion with his father, yet also laboriously meeting the needs of the desperate world around him. But worship. So we want to emphasize in our closing time, worship. This has been such a critical and helpful study to me. So uh, let me read you a quote as we emphasize worship. Uh, A.W. Tozer said this, Without doubt, the emphasis in Christian teaching today should be on worship. There is little danger that we shall become merely worshipers and neglect the practical implications of the gospel. Because remember, genuine worship leads to service. No one can long worship God in spirit and truth before the obligation to holy service becomes too strong to resist. How can I worship the God who is the creator of all? who brought all things into existence by the word of his power, that same God that hung upon the tree for me, that died for me, how can it not? How can that obligation to holy service not become so strong that we're unable to resist it? Fellowship with God leads straight to obedience and good works. That is the divine order, and it can never be reversed. A.W. Tozer said this as well, God wants worshipers before workers. Indeed, the only acceptable workers are those who have learned the lost art of worship. And he also said this. I don't want to overwhelm you with quotes, but man, there are some good ones. It is scarcely possible in most places to get anyone to attend a meeting where the only attraction is God. I didn't say that. Tozer said that. It is scarcely possible in most places to get anyone to attend a meeting where the only attraction is God. That is true, very true. Let me read you one more. Okay, George Barna said this, and I'm going to build off of this. Responsibility to worship. Most adults will contend that a Christian has a responsibility to worship God. However, when asked to define what worship means, two out of three are unable to offer an appropriate definition or description of worship. So I want you to think about it for just a moment. What is worship? I'm going to give you just a minute. I want you to think, I'm not trying to put anybody on the spot, not trying to make anyone feel bad in any way, but I just want you to think for a moment. What, in fact, is worship? Many of us would agree with Barna. It's a responsibility of the Christian to worship. But what is worship? Barna says two out of three are unable to offer an appropriate definition or description of worship. You're thinking, I hope. Let me say this. Though worship can be given no adequately exhaustive definition, there are some definitions of worship that have value. Like love, worship is that type of thing that there is no adequately exhaustive single definition. I found that to be very, very true. But let me give you a few definitions that have value, even though they aren't adequately exhaustive. Definition, true worship is a valuing or a treasuring of God above all things. 
That's one. Definition number two, and there's tons of them out there. The overflow, true worship is the overflow of a grateful heart under a sense of divine favor. Another one, true worship is the outpouring of a soul at rest in the presence of God. One more. Worship is the occupation of the heart, not with its needs or even with its blessings, but just with God himself. That's an excellent definition. Again, it's not adequately exhaustive. There's more to it than that. But worship is the occupation of the heart, not with its needs or even with its blessings, but with God himself. Many of you know this, that worship could be rightly pronounced worth-ship, worth-ship, because it consists of the description of the worth of the object or the person that's being worshipped. So worship could be pronounced worth-ship, describing the worth of the one who is worthy. We see this all throughout the book of Revelation. Worthy, O God, worthy is the Lamb, ascribing worth, value, to the one that's being worshipped. Let me give you six words or six categories, helps, I trust, regarding true worship. This is the meat of where we're at today. First of all, worship involves a posture, a posture. And these are alliterated if you like alliterations. If you don't, you can cast it aside. Worship involves a posture. Mary took a pound of very costly oil of spikenard, anointed the feet of Jesus, and wiped his feet with her hair. It doesn't take much imagination to realize that in order for her to wipe his feet with her hair, she was bowed at his feet. This is consistent throughout all of the scripture that true worship involves a posture, the posture of bowing down. Falling, bowing down. Joshua 5.14, Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshipped. Fell on his face. The wise men in Matthew 2, you know, they came into the house and when they saw the young child with Mary, his mother, they fell down. They fell down and worshipped. Satan would tempt the Lord Jesus, wouldn't he say? Saying, all these things I'll give to you if you do what? If you'll bow down, if you'll fall down and worship me. And that's when Jesus said, of course, uh, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Matthew 28, 9, the people came, they held him by the feet and they worshiped him. The posture of worship. Charles Spurgeon said this, worship is the highest elevation of the spirit and yet the lowliest prostration of the soul. This is the posture of worship. But we recognize that the Lord Jesus has taken this a step further or deeper, you could say. Because it's not just the literal posture of the person, but the Lord Jesus in his most uh, explicit words on worship would say those that worship the Father must worship in spirit, in spirit and truth. So it's not so much the physical posture, though that may follow, but it is the bowed spirit, the bowed heart. Worship in spirit, spiritual posture. Not so much physical posture, although the physical may follow. Paul would say in Philippians 3, we worship God in spirit, we rejoice in Christ Jesus. It is a spiritual posture of bowing down. Okay, 
there's lots more to say about that. We're going to go back to that, okay? Because this builds. So posture is part of it. Second of all, presentation. Throughout the scripture, it's not only the bowing down, but it's the offering up. That one would fall before the Lord of the, the feet of the Lord Jesus and then offer up. And we have that in our text, don't we? We already read it. Mary bowed down at the feet of the Lord Jesus and she offered up this beautiful fragrance, this sweet perfume. This is worship. This is worship. Presentation. It's all throughout the scripture. I don't have time to go into it. All throughout the perpetual incense going up from the tabernacle to the Lord through all your generations, Exodus 38. Bowing down the posture, offering up the presentation. This is worship. Now, you could say, and there's lots more to say about that. By the way, okay, so 1 Peter 2 calls you and I a spiritual priesthood. Offering up spiritual sacrifices. So we're not coming physically, we know this, to just physically bow down and bring some physical gift to the Lord, but we're coming in spirit to bow the heart, to bow the mind, to to, to bow in that sense in spirit before the Lord and to offer up not physical sacrifices, but spiritual sacrifices. Sacrifices like Hebrews 13 would say, the sacrifice of praise, that's the fruit of your lips. The sacrifice of praise that's being offered up, bowing down, offering up all throughout the scripture, not physical, but spiritual. You could say these two things encapsulate the core of worship. What is worship? Someone may say to you, or you may think, if you don't want to go to one of the definitions, you could say at its very essence, this is worship. This is the literal act of worship. It's the bowing down and the offering up. When we come on Sunday mornings here at 930, we come to remember the Lord Jesus Christ for all that he's done for us at Calvary. And when we do that, we can't help, I trust, in our spirits and in our hearts, bow down and offer up to him. This is the core of worship, the very act of worship. This is very simple. I want you to get a grasp of this before we go forward because Sometimes worship is so construed with mysterious things and, and, and certain settings and certain places and certain events. But this is the core of worship. Bow down, offer up. This is the core of worship. That, you could say, is the act of worship. But I want to suggest to you something that the Lord just blew me away with. The reason why these are in the middle of the screen is because there are things that are necessary to get to the point of bowing down and offering up in sincerity. Because remember that the Lord Jesus would say to certain ones, you worship me in vain. This can be done, but it can be done in vain, empty, futile, The Lord Jesus would say this to certain ones who did these things. They bowed down, they offered up, but it was all outward. It was all external. The Lord Jesus would say in that same text, they honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. So the core of worship, the act of worship is the idea of bowing down and offering up. But there are things that are necessary to get us, the Christian, to the point of doing this in sincerity. 
in reality, in truth. What are those things? I'm going to give you two. I'm not saying there's not more in the scripture, but there are two things that are necessary, at least, to sincerely get us to the point of the core of worship of bowing down and offering up. There is, you could say, a prerequisite to worship, and that prerequisite is purity, is holiness. Holiness. Perhaps one of the most neglected of all things in our society today and in Christian circles, holiness. True worship of the heart demands purity. Never mind calling in the masses to a worship service with many who are unregenerate, who have never even been given the holiness of the Lord Jesus Christ and calling upon them to worship. This is done in our Christian circles today. I'm not casting stones at it, but I'm saying we need to beware. You can call in the unregenerate. You can call in the unholy, but they can't offer worship to God. The prerequisite is holiness. Who shall ascend into the hill of the Lord? Who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart. Holiness, a prerequisite to worship. 1 Peter 2 tells us we're a spiritual priesthood offering up spiritual sacrifices to God through Jesus Christ. 1 Peter 1 says, Be ye holy, for I, the Lord, am holy. The priests of the Old Testament that were specifically called upon to do the worshiping were set apart. They were consecrated. I encourage you some point, read it. There is so much holiness all over that priesthood. Even though at times there was wickedness in the heart, the prescription of God was holiness. They were consecrated. They were set apart. They literally wore a plaque that said holiness to the Lord. The priests of the Old Testament. You're a spiritual priest if you know the Lord Jesus Christ is your Savior. So am I. What about holiness? What about holiness? Lots more that could be said about that. Lots. Secondly, and we're going to run through these as we close. The prerequisite to holiness, to worship, you could say, is holiness, but there's a preparation involved too. We've talked about this quite a bit. The preparation of worship. True worship requires preparation. I'm going to repeat that again. True, sincere, ongoing worship requires a prepared heart. Not just a pure heart, but a prepared heart. This also is scattered all throughout the scriptures. Look at Mary, first of all. How long did this woman prepare this gift for? It's an illustration to us. A year's salary how long would it take you to save a common man's year's salary? A long time, I would suggest to you. How long would it take a woman to do that in that culture? I, I don't know. 
the preparation that went into her bowing down and her offering up was immense, immense. This oil valued at a year's salary. Abraham, we're told in Genesis 22, the very first mention of worship in the scriptures, its preparation is all over it. We've talked about this a ton. He's preparing wood. He's preparing uh, the carts. He's preparing. He's getting Isaac ready. He's taking a three-day journey to go up to the Lord to worship. Worship. There's a prerequisite, which is holiness, that we would be separate from the things of the world, but separated unto somebody that is God. And there is preparation. Where is your communion with the Lord? Sometimes we come in Sunday morning and we say, boring, boring. This whole thing is boring. Where's your holiness? Are you separate? Are you prepared? To what value do you place separation in preparation? You want worship of God to be not boring? Then separate yourselves like those priests of old and prepare your hearts. By how? By the scriptures. We need, like Isaiah had, sorry, a fresh vision of the Lord, a fresh vision of the Lord that we would see him And when we get a fresh vision of him in our preparation, our heart overflows with worship. But you know what common Christianity does. And again, I'm not casting stones, but we need to think about this. This is what so much of Christianity does. They know that people ought to be bowing down and offering up, but they're not. So what can we do to fix this problem? Let's get a, let's get a band. Let's get lights. Let's get smoke. Let's get dancers. Let's get something going to stir the emotions. Yeah. I'm not against music, brothers and sisters. It's a gift from God for the worshiping heart to express worship. Yes. But every gift from God can be misused by the people of God. God has given us many good gifts. And they're good within their confines, but you take them outside of those confines, you misuse them, and it's devastating. It's detrimental. So what we need is not a band and lights and smoke, but what we need is people that are holy and prepared. You want true worship? Holy and prepared. But you want to know something? Though this is not the core of worship, this is the cost of worship. This is the cost of worship. Our ability to worship in spirit and truth. I don't want to be like those Pharisees, but I am sometimes. I worship in vain at times. I sing, but there's no heart there. I I pray, but my mind is not really there. I don't want to be worshiping in vain. I want true worship. This is worship that's in spirit and in truth, but it's going to cost you something. It's going to cost me something. What about holiness? What about separation and preparation? To what degree do you value those things? Well, to the same degree that you value worship, really, if you really think about it. So what I'm saying, please don't mishear me. I'm not bashing instruments. 
I, I have no problem with instruments. I see them in scripture. They're a gift from God. But instruments to stir the emotions, to try to get people to a point of worship is all wrong. That's all wrong. We need the truth of the word of God within our spirits an understanding of who God is, an understanding of what he's done. We need a fresh vision of him in order to really worship. You can put all the lights and music. You can pump in smoke. You can do all of that, but it's never going to create. It'll create worship, but it'll create vain worship. And that's not what we want. We want true worship. Those, the Lord Jesus said, who will worship in spirit and in truth. Music, a gift from God. But music misused is devastating, devastating. People think that they can live their life whatever way they want. And I include myself at times, Monday to Saturday. I can live and do whatever I want. I don't prepare. That's for the worship team. They prepare for me. They prepare the songs. They prepare the thoughts. I don't need to prepare my heart. I just come. And they think this is true worship. This is not true worship separation, that's the prerequisite, holiness, pure living. And the prepared heart is the only way to get to true, sincere worship, worship that's in spirit and in truth. And if we use music, praise God, music can allow the true worshiper to help express worship. I've got no problem with that but don't use it to try to stir up the emotions to get people down to the posture of worship and to presenting worship to God. That's vain worship. The last two things as we close. There is a permeation of worship. We see it here. The scent filled the house. This is tremendous. True worship does have a permeating effect. When you dwell in the presence of God, it will move you. So I am not criticizing uh, uh, emotional worship. I'm not criticizing that because true worship should move the emotions. It should. The scent of Mary's offering filled the house. They smelled it. I don't want to take that too far. It's just an illustration, but it did affect the senses in that sense. It did. And so true worship will do that. Those like uh, 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 in Nehemiah's day and even Job, worship may include weeping. That's an emotion. Worship may include joy. That's an emotion. I'm not doubting it. Worship, true worship, does have a permeating effect on others and on the senses within us. It does. It may move us. I've got to close. There's lots that could be said about that. There's other illustrations. Lastly, I want to close with this. There is a consummation of worship that involves the permeating effect to others around us as well as the permeating effect to our senses, to our emotions, to our soul. But there is also a pleasure that comes with worship that is far beyond anything that this world has to offer. The pleasure of worship. Psalm 16 and verse 11 says this, In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forever. The the consummation of worship, though we don't go into it to be pleased and to be satisfied, we go into it at the beginning with the cost involved, 
But in the end, it brings a joy and a pleasure because in the presence of God, there is fullness of joy and pleasures forever. The pleasure of worship. The world offers so many things that will never satisfy, that will never bring lasting joy. But in the Lord Jesus Christ, in his presence, the scripture is filled with it. Psalm 16, 36, 43, 51, 65, Psalm 84, better is one day in your courts, Lord, than thousands elsewhere. Where else? The football game? I love football, but nothing like being in the courts of God. Nothing like being in the presence of God. Better is one day in your courts, Lord, than a thousand elsewhere. No vacation. You pick it, whatever it is. It's nothing like being in the presence of God. Like in Luke 24, they worshiped and they returned to Jerusalem with great joy. Great joy. There is a pleasure that comes from worship that is far beyond anything that the Lord or that the world could ever offer. I tried the broken cisterns, Lord, but all the waters failed. Even as I stooped to drink those broken cisterns, the water fled and it mocked me as I wailed, but none but Christ can satisfy. No other name for me. There's love and life and lasting joy, Lord Jesus, found in thee. This is the last thing I'm going to say. This is so crucial and so helpful to me. Some people say, A God that demands worship? How can it be? If a person demands worship, that's wrong. They're prideful. They're welled up with themselves. How can I ever... You love a God that demands worship? I do love a God that demands worship. And this is one of the reasons why. Because if being in the presence of God is fullness of joy satisfaction and lasting pleasure and being in his presence necessitates worship then god's command for mankind to worship him is not born out of narcissistic egotism but supreme love this is a loving command let all the earth adore me let all the earth worship me because why that's the presence of god and in the presence of god is lasting pleasure joy inexpressible this is the god that we serve our heavenly father we thank you for your word we thank you for the way that you have communicated to us you've spoken to us through the lord jesus christ he is that final word and we delight O oh god to worship you you are great and greatly to be praised and we delight to do that O oh god as i even speak here today you have spoken to me that I would return to that place which costs so much to separate myself and prepare my heart for you. Lord, help each one of us as we go. Oh God, we do not want this assembly to be an assembly of vain worship and we can be there. We are there at times. We want sincere worship that's in spirit and truth. Help us, oh God, to pay the price to get to that place. We pray. Help us in Jesus' name. Amen.